0: The truth of that song is so powerful as we strive to walk the way of the reconciled. Today I'm going to continue to preach on this topic, the way of the reconciled. The way of the reconciled demands two things. Number one, that we are human, which means that we see each other. Number two, the way of the reconciled demands that we behave like Jesus, which means to sacrifice for each other. Today, I would like to preach this sermon for the very first time ever in the form of a letter to my community and to my church family. To whom it may concern, as a black man in America, I expect you to be human, to see each other, I also expect you to be like Jesus and to sacrifice for the other. I need you to make these words your own. I can't breathe. These are words of an handcuffed, unarmed black man named George Floyd. When our brother George Floyd called out for help and said, I can't breathe. George wanted those around him, including the officer on his neck, to see him as a human being in need of air and to show compassion and basic human dignity. A need to breathe is at the core of our humanity. It is a theological idea born out of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. A poet writes, God thought and thought till he thought, aha, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay and by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down and there the great God almighty who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the most far corner of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand. This great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it, he blew the breath of life, And man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. The famous poet James Johnson borrows from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's one of the first passages that we will hear today. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Genesis 2, 7 says, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living soul. When George Floyd cried, I can't breathe, that was not a political statement. It was a sound of human sorrow. We have two options in light of what's going on. Option number one, debate a problem That has been in the middle of our country's history like an elephant in the room for 401 years. Or we can do something about it. The way of the reconciled isn't a political debate, it is empathetic action towards justice and reconciliation. I can't breathe. The concept of breath and breathing is not only biblical, but it is theological. It tells us about God and his glorious masterpiece called creation. Can you see George Floyd trapped under the knee of America's systemic and sanctioned oppression? It's so real that right now we have a government full of senators and big-time officials trying to legislate morality and force over 100, 200, 300, 400, one years of sin under the submission of human law. Genesis gives us a hint to why the testimony of George Floyd is critically important. Because if he can't breathe, The imago Dei, our dignity, worth, and value is up for debate in this supposed Christian nation. If George Floyd can't breathe, it questions the weight of our belief in God's ability to create and shape humanity. If George Floyd can't breathe, it begs the question What do we really believe? For anyone to take human life under their knee as the world is watching forces me to ask all of us, forces me to ask myself, how much is a life worth? And how much do we believe in humanity's inherent dignity, worth, and value? Is this something that we just say In evangelical circles? Or is this something that we truly hold near and dear to our hearts? Is this just orthodoxy? Or has this translated in my orthopraxy? Calling into question the value of creation inevitably puts its creator on trial. Did the creator make man in his image? Did the creator? truly call man and his creation good if god created which he did if he called it good which he did and if man is an image bearer which we are this might explain the feeling in many of our heads and in many of our hearts when we say to the scream. As we watch George Floyd gasp for air, I can't breathe. I can't breathe reminds me of my own narrative. When I watched the video with the rest of the world, like many of you, I did not see a random black body lying on the ground. I saw value. I saw George Floyd. I saw an image bearer of God, but I also saw myself. I saw my own reflection. I was reminded of my appeal with unreasonable, overreaching and racist police officers that have, that have taken it upon them, themselves to, to harass and oppress me in my neighborhood, in this city and in cities across the country. I saw the racist jokes and unwelcome stereotypes my own kids have endured in this city and in this neighborhood and in neighborhoods across the country. I heard and saw systemic oppression experienced in recent history in and through my wife's career and my career and my parents' careers, and my grandparents' careers, in grocery stores, on golf courses, in boardrooms, and at dinner parties. As George Floyd fought for his life in the middle of the street, I screamed with you at the TV, he can't breathe. Get off of him, he's compliant. And after one minute, after two minutes, after three minutes, after four minutes, after five and after six and after seven, almost nine minutes with you, I screamed, he can't breathe. The author of Genesis is Moses. Moses describes the creation of man by using clay. Listen to this. Clay from the earth. But he also describes creation of man by the breath of God. This is significant because it says there is more to humanity than skin, bones, frame, muscles, vines and and, and veins, excuse me, and tissue and and blood. There there is more to man and, and the author Moses writes that there's this idea, there's this this crazy hint towards a breath. Moses writes as if in an instant, man became a living soul. In scripture, we clearly see that God builds a man, but we also see in scripture that God breathes into a man. Maybe that's why I am so angry That such a precious gift, also known as the breath of God, a breath that only God can give, can be taken away in a moment. Maybe that's why I'm so angry that I have been a part of a society that chooses year over year for 401 years to keep rehearsing and reconstructing and reimagining the same act of white supremacy in different flavors and forms and serving it to black people and brown people and calling it progress. The cry of George Floyd calls us to see the other, to fully embrace the other without prejudice. Could this be why millions of protesters across the world are chanting with you and chanting with me? I can't breathe. The way of the reconciled demands that we see each other. I hate to be repetitive, but I have to hit this point that we not only mourn, but also that we march and mobilize change for the sake of, of value and the dignity that we all have as image bearers of god if i were talking about abortion so many of my neighbors my white evangelical pastor friends would say preach it but because i'm talking about a black body i don't hear the same encouragement and my question is why is that why is that i wonder Is not the life of a 46-year-old black man just as worthy of protest and policy and prayers as an unborn fetus? I know many of you would say, yes, they're equally important. Yes, it is. But do our actions match our yes? Or are we silent because it's bad form in the circles we live in to talk about systemic oppression and racism, the American evangelical church for years have been complicit. They have gone silent from the transatlantic slave trade to pastors and lay members debating if they want to allow black slaves to be baptized in fear of having to uphold the full weight of the gospel. And free them after they're baptized, which means that they would lose their complementary labor and income. The American white evangelical church has been complicit, which prompted Martin Luther King Jr. 57 years ago to respond to eight white pastors who criticized Dr. King for saying his version of I can't breathe in the middle of peaceful protest. The white pastors called Dr. King's efforts unwise and untimely. King wrote back to them from a Birmingham jail, I confess that over the past few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that Negroes great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. King's words about white moderates 57 years ago almost sound like he was living through the new form of racism in oppression in 2020. A more nuanced, of course, a more nuanced form of implicit bias today. That has closed shut the mouths of white moderates in white evangelical churches where it's wrong to speak against sinful racism within our White House and police department. It's a scary time. When as believers, we find ourselves attempting to sanitize scriptures to justify our silence and convenient ignorance every time another blue lynching is recorded and posted on YouTube. As a black man in a racist America that still uses code phrases and secret language like he's appealing to his base, 30% of our country only to describe a people group that openly hates black skin, refugees, and immigrants. Listen, I don't expect you to feel like I feel or to sit in guilt or in shame. I expect you to look like and behave like image bearers of God. I expect you to mourn, march, and make massive changes in your boardrooms and dinner parties when our brother cries out, I can't breathe. As a black man in America, I expect you to be human, which means to see the other. But finally, lastly, I expect you to be like Jesus, And to sacrifice for the other. Now many of you are asking, how might I do this? I'm so glad you asked. Luke 10, 25 through 37 gives us the blueprint. Instead of asking those who have been victimized to give you the solution for you to stop victimizing them. (laughs) Let's just look at Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his own actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus. Jesus replied with a story. And here's the point. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. If I could put a pin there, this man was similar to George Floyd, who screamed out, I can't breathe. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. But he put the man, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn or a hotel, Airbnb, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these, Jesus asked? Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replies, this this lawyer replies to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. I can stop the sermon right there. But I want to break it down just so there is no confusion. In this passage, we see how to sacrifice for our neighbor and how to not sacrifice for our neighbor. Jesus, who is questioned not only on the width and depth of neighborly sacrifice, but also the proximity and territory and the domain restrictions of love for the other. The sneaky lawyer who is trying to justify his own limited view, his isolated convictions, and arguably his ethnic prejudice to avoid the real work of sacrificially loving someone outside of his preferences tempts Jesus and tries to put Jesus to the test, looking for a loophole. Then we also see in this narrative the half-murdered traveler. The road, as you may or may not know, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is infamous for being riddled with robbers. The highway robbers have robbed him of all he had and almost to his death. The traveler was begging for air with every gasp, fighting for his life with an unmistakable need for help. Listen to this. There was no debate, there was no confusion as to what the situation was. But look at how certain people responded to a very clear situation. The priest is believed to be coming down from the holy services at the temple. He chooses convenience and comfort by ignoring the half-murdered man's need and passes by on the other side. The prestige and the privilege, dare I say white privilege, of his pastoral and leadership office has robbed his heart of empathy and love, choosing his own schedule over sacrifice. The looky-loo Levite, the temple tenant, goes to the man and sees the situation, but concludes it's too much, judging it as hopeless. It's a hopeless case without actually applying the faith that he just finished singing about and passed by like the priest on the other side. But there's another, and I'm praying to Jesus the Christ that you are that other. The good Samaritan, this man might have said, could have said, for some people, Probably they wish they have said, this poor fellow is one of those Jews who will have no dealings with us Samaritans. He has often most likely called us dogs. He deserves no care. But instead, the good Samaritan did not say that. But instead of looking for excuses for neglecting the sufferer, he owns the poor man's pain as a brother in distress, also known as being empathetic. The result is he dismounts from his donkey, gets off his donkey, and pours oil and wine into the wounds of the man who's half-murdered. The best remedies he offers, the one to keep down inflammation, and the other to heal the wounds. And having carefully bound up his wounds, he sets him on his own beast and brings him to the nearest inn and has him comfortably lodged. Here is true sacrifice. How do I respond to the errors of my country's ways? How do I respond to systematic oppression? Here is a clear example of how you respond. Sacrifice. Our neighbor is whoever is laid out on the street, Jesus responds our neighbor is whoever lays out on the street and really needs our help. Could it be, could it be that God has brought the brokenness of an American systemic oppression to your street, on your phone, on your Facebook account, on your news channel, and to your churches, and to your church stage, In the form of the cry of George Floyd, I can't breathe. So you can respond only by the power. As Pastor Caleb said last week, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that the Jesus that we serve is speaking to us and calling us to not only see the other, but to sacrifice for the other, like the Good Samaritan. More importantly, like the same Jesus we serve. Policies are great. Making our roads and streets safe is important. Donating to charity is awesome. Texting our friends and and supporting people via social media, that's great, but I challenge you, to reread Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, and ask yourself, what does it look like for me? And I'll ask myself, what does it look like for Matthew for me to get off my donkey, to spend my time, to leverage my resources, to lift this stranger onto my donkey, according to the text? And not only take care of his room and board, but promise to cover any future costs. I'll tell you what that means, if I could summarize it. Sacrifice. We are called to sacrifice. I challenge you to sacrifice. We are called to be like Jesus. I challenge you to be like Jesus. To put our privilege to put your privilege, to put our power, to put your power, and to put our preferences, to put your preferences on the line to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if it's at the expense of our own comfort and our own safety. The gospel narrative screams sacrifice, Over political party. The the gospel narrative screams sacrifice over my personal preferences. The gospel narrative, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ begs of us to choose sacrifice over white privilege, over economic status, over that's them over there not us over here. The question is, will we be informed by the gospel or by what's convenient? Today, I encourage you, as I close, to do two things. Be human, which means to see the other, but finally also to be like Jesus, which means to sacrifice for the other. Join me as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us the truth of your word. It's kind of hard to debate Luke chapter 10 and the lengths that the good Samaritan goes to make sure a total stranger is taken care of, even when it had nothing to do with him on paper. God, I pray that you will continue to speak to my heart and that you will continue to speak to the hearts and minds of every single person listening to this little message, to this little letter. I pray that you will heal our country, And help us to navigate the challenges of this moment, beyond the pandemic, beyond the riots, beyond all of these twists and turns. And help us to walk the way of the reconciled. Help us to be peacemakers, which sometimes means we are speaking truth to power. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.